2: Automotive enthusiasts are some of the most opinionated people on earth. But in general, most of them agree that Porsche makes some of the most enjoyable cars to drive. Everyone from Jay Leno to Jay-Z has praised the German brand for being consistently tasteful and extraordinarily fun behind the wheel. Porsche has such panache that it's easy to assume they've been a rock solid luxury import since the beginning. They're owned by Volkswagen. They have a stellar racing resume, and they're one of the most respected brands by aficionados and casual drivers alike. But it wasn't always that way. Did you know that Porsche has been on the brink of bankruptcy not once, but three times since they began production? What if I told you that the iconic 911 didn't rescue the company's bottom line, but was actually saved by one of their less famous models. How in tarnation did Porsche handle these financial disasters to not only bounce back, but also revolutionize the luxury auto industry? Today on Past Gas, the story of how Porsche has gone from penthouse to outhouse and back again while creating some incredible vehicles along the way. Past Gas Podcast. It's about cars, it's not about ports. It's pronounced... Porsche. Porsche. Uh. Porsche.
3: You know, guys, I'm moving. No one's going to help me move tomorrow morning. Yeah, I am. Um, it is very hard to find a penthouse in Los Angeles that also has an outhouse.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm from Kentucky and, like, I'm not, I really, I'm like, doing pretty well mm-hmm. we're in a video game now well, so, you're
4: used to outhouses and i love
3: yeah. an outhouse and i haven't had an outhouse since i moved to california i'm like this is the time i'm finally going to get a place with an outhouse <laughs> and it was so hard to find but i did
2: nice so uh wow. i'm you got a shovel yeah and you
4: have you have a an elevator that goes straight <laughs> yeah, to your door so you take like, it down. goes to the
2: front door and then you do have to walk like 75 yards. Yeah. Because it's
3: not the same experience if you're not freezing. Right. So I got my long johns on.
2: <laughs> yeah. I unbuttoned the back. <laughs> the little and hatch. You're mm-hmm. waddling towards yeah. it, <laughs> like
4: seven in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. And, and carrying
2: yeah. a candle and a little mm-hmm. uh, holder thing. And then I put it all
3: in a hole and I burn it. There you go. Pour, uh, pour some kerosene on it and burn it.
4: So my great grandma's from Sicily and we grew up speaking like random Italian words. Mm-hmm. And bellissimo. Uh, my whole life we thought that Bakaozu was bathroom Mm -hmm. in Italian or at least like the Sicilian dialect. And it wasn't until like maybe 15 years ago that we found out, she was just mispronouncing "backhouse." Backhouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> That's great. It's I like love that really. uh,
3: stuff. Into like Google, like read text. Yeah. Voice yeah, text, yeah. and like you can choose the accent. Backhouse. Yeah.
2: Uh, take the exit at La Sierra. La Sierra. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Yeah, it's like almost problematic when they say Los Angeles. <laughs> 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 Supple Vida. <laughs> yeah, that's classic. These are all uh, Los Angeles-specific Google
2: yeah. Maps. <laughs> because yes. we
4: only talk about traffic and yeah. how to get around around here. It's
2: true. It's true. Welcome back to Pass Gas, everybody. Exciting day here at the Donut Office. We're recording this on November 10th, which is when the Donut Media story on Forza Horizon 5 went live. Uh, I... I'm overwhelmed. Really. Dude, it's so surreal. I
3: got a little emotional yeah. twice, like yesterday and the day before. Like Nolan and I are in a video game. Our faces and versions and- of our bodies <laughs> are in them. Uh, we were given the, or I was, and I spoke on the guy's behalf. We were given the choice between the, quote, normal body <laughs> or uh, the, quote, chubby body. Yeah. yeah. And we ch- I chose the normal one. 'Cause they were like, some of the some of the clothes won't fit, the chubby one. I, like, well, <laughs> I was already gonna pick the normal one. <laughs> so uh, we are a little skinnier than we are in real life. Don't be surprised if you meet us uh, in person yeah. and we're a little beefier, but yeah, uh, we we know. Yeah, we know. We know okay? I don't regret my decision <laughs> yeah, at <no>. all. <laughs> <no. laughs> I'd rather shrink into my fours of self instead of growing my <laughs> real life self.
2: It didn't really hit me until like this morning when people were kind of tagging us and instagram stories mm-hmm. and it's it's just overwhelming i can't i don't know i have a hard time with stuff like this you yeah know?
3: because we are so focused on like moving forward with stuff it is sort of hard to be proud of yourself um but i think we should take time nolan totally and yeah. joe and uh want to be proud of ourselves but also thank all you guys for supporting us absolutely um it's cool that this is our job and it's you know like i can't believe we have such an amazing audience um that allows us to do truly mind blowing things mm-hmm. that I never thought would be possible. So thank you guys for all your support and uh cool we'll just keep trying
4: to do um new <laughs> and awesome stuff for you. Um and it's cool for me because I uh am in the video game as well, but I had to make my own character. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: so we can hang out yeah but i the
4: good news is we're, I'm the main character yeah yeah yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> like you're the cool friend <laughs> so if we're like out of town or something yeah uh, like over Christmas break so uh-huh. you're home and uh you're like man I really miss <laughs> nolan and james yeah you as joe yeah can go do a mission. Oh, with James us is in giving Mexico. me a mission just like he does at work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what I call tasks. <laughs> it makes it more fun around the office. Hey, man, I got a mission for you. Uh, can you write a
4: script on? Well, James gave me three gold stars on my script this week. <laughs> Awesome.
3: Well, speaking of scripts, let's get into this yeah, one. Let's do it. Let's talk about Porsche. Oh, I'm James Pumphrey. Oh, uh, yeah. Also, that other voice you hear is uh, Joe Weber, and uh,
2: the guy from the intro is Nolan Sykes. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, big thank you to our returning listeners, and if this is your first time, welcome to the show.
3: Yeah, welcome to the show. We're in, a, we're in a video game. <laughs> Take your shoes off. <laughs> Take your
4: <laughs> shoes get a off. Bowl of ice cream.
2: Yeah, yeah. Get cozy or drive to work. Whatever you're doing. Do it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> As we all know, the mid-1960s were a wild time. The Vietnam War was in full swing. The Beatles were making music history. <laughs> and consumer advocate Ralph Nader released his book, Unsafe at Any Speed. Okay, so maybe you haven't heard of Nader's book. If but you've
3: listened to anything or watched anything on our channel, you you've probably, probably
2: heard of it, yeah. But when it came to the auto industry in 1965, this book was a very big deal. Most of Unsafe at Any Speed focused on issues ranging from miserable crash protection to the alarming number of drivers being impaled by steering wheels. But the book also took an especially harsh view of the rear-engine sports car. Why attack these cute little speedsters, you ask? Well, simply put, the Chevrolet Corvair had essentially become an unguided missile on the road, crashing and killing Americans in the early 1960s at a startling rate. Nader's research pointed to the Corvair's rear engine design as the primary reason for the carnage, which led executives across the auto industry to fear that the layout could be altogether banned in the coming years. That's something we don't really think about often is like an engine layout being banned.
4: Yeah, I. Th- but we talked about this before. We've had episodes of Wheelhouse or whatever. It wasn't necessarily just the placement of the engine. It was the suspension, mm-hmm. the rear suspension. Yes. That made it kind of wily.
2: Yeah. So what the engineers did, because the rear suspension geometry itself was not super stable, I think it was particularly under, like, if you let off the gas, like a Porsche in a turn, uh, you know, the rear end had a tendency to step out and spin out and kill you. Uh, But what they did to compensate for that was let air out of the tires. And that would make an adjustment to, like, the uh, rebound and what have you. Yeah. Um, But... You know, if you didn't know that and didn't stick to like your owner's manual and just pumped up to the tires to like whatever you thought fit, like whatever was on the tire, uh-huh. uh, that stiffened the rear end and thus made it twitchier and more likely to kill you.
4: We we did go-karting yesterday and they actually let the air out of the tires a little bit. Really? Did you not hear that? No. Oh, someone asked it as a joke, like, what's the PSI in the tires? And the guy was like, well, actually 34 and 32, whatever. And he was saying that people were getting much better times by letting out oh, four or five PSI. Of course, yeah. Yeah.
2: Probably wouldn't have been skittering all over the place and understeering like a, a madman on those Yeah, things. that was
4: a lot of understeer. Dang,
2: dude. I wish wish we asked earlier. Anyway. Yeah, man, let's talk about this for longer. Yeah, Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway. One company that was really sweating after Nader's book was Porsche. They released their flagship model, the 911, only a year before. And while their rear-engine coupe was an immediate hit at the racetrack and with consumers, if the laws changed in the U.S., their most important market, they would be in dire financial straits. I love dire straits. Me too. You guys like that band? Good band. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But first, let's roll back the clock and get a quick hit of Porsche history So we have some context.
3: Porsche was founded in Stuttgart, Germany in 1931 by Austrian-born mechanical engineer slash friend of Adolf Hitler, Ferdinand Porsche. After years of working for other companies such as Daimler-Benz, the doctor decided to strike out on his own. Despite being an extremely small operation with limited resources, Ferdinand and his firm quickly garnered a reputation as one of the most innovative automotive designers in the country within only a few years. Now, when Hitler came to power in the mid-30s, one of his priorities beyond fascist world domination was working out the kinks in the soon-to-be mass-produced Volkswagen, or the people's car. Ferdinand got a call from Adolf to help out, and voila, by 1935, Porsche had designed a version of the iconic
2: Volkswagen Beetle. And by design, he kind of copied it from a Jewish designer from a Czech company called Tatra.
3: Hitler was so impressed with Ferdinand's work that he personally saw to it that Porsche designed a Volkswagen racer for the 1939 Auto Union Grand Prix. Along with a larger wheelbase and a more aerodynamic design, Porsche tinkered with the idea of expanding engine capacity by using different valves and cylinder heads. He also began to zero in on a revolutionary function called fuel injection. Hmm. Ferdinand had whipped up three prototypes by early 1939, but then Germany made some, shall we say, aggressive military moves into Poland that same year. And as a result, the Auto Union Grand Prix was canceled and further development of the Porsche race car was brought to a halt. Throughout World War II, Ferdinand remained in cahoots with Hitler. He wasn't involved in any combat, but he continued work on the consumer-focused Beetle and lent his know-how to the Fuhrer for how to increase production of German military equipment. And because of this, Porsche was arrested and thrown in French prison for 22 months
2: after the war. Mm. Not a very long sentence. No, not really. Considering. Well, as his father grinded out his prison sentence, Ferdinand's son, Dr. Ferdinand Ferry Porsche Jr., assumed (laughs) control of the company and moved the firm back to Austria, where they initially stayed afloat as a general repair and service company. But by late 1946, they had regained their financial footing and were considering how to enter the
4: auto market with their own design. They should have called the Boxster the the Porsche Jr. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right? Mm Mm-hmm. Porsche
2: Junior.
4: 100%.
2: (laughs) The Junior new from Porsche. You don't really see Porsche commercials on TV, do you? I don't have to. (laughs) Uh, I also can't remember the last time I've watched TV. Yeah. Well, I love when uh, we travel and have to stay in a hotel because then you get to catch up on what broadcast television is like. Uh And it's dire,
3: yeah. If you like for anyone complaining about the number of ads in a YouTube video, mm-hmm. watch cable, yeah, yeah,
2: watch uh, deadliest catch <laughs> gold rush edition, uh, where they're <laughs> uh, they have to like survive on their own and mine gold, yeah, yeah, with try, crabs, try, try, try and follow a narrative 45 seconds at a time with yeah.
3: nine minute breaks to watch Cialis yeah. commercials. <laughs>
2: Anyway, don't see any Porsche commercials when watching yeah. that. You've been in a Porsche commercial?
3: Yes. Yeah. yeah. Really? Is that why you brought it up?
2: Well, now so that you <laughs> mention it. No, I mean, we did the Porsche spot. That's oh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Ferry Porsche decided that if they were going to go pro, they would need to start small and appeal to a very specific demographic. People with money. Ferry researched demand for handmade high-performance machines and eventually convinced a group of Swiss investors to back his fledgling project. Based on the bones of a VW Bug, the Porsche 3561 Roadster hit the streets of Austria in March of 1948 with an adjusted for inflation price of about 42 grand, More like 60 grand with markup today. <laughs> yeah. you know uh,
3: They're selling a 356 at uh, $99,000 at this dealership <laughs> in Ohio. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the 356 Roadster had a 1.1 liter four-cylinder VW rear engine, That could speed the curvy little coupe to over 80 miles per hour. This thing goes zero to 80. (laughs) (laughs) Praised for its fantastic handling and eye-catching design, the model was an immediate hit. And true to Ferry Jr.'s frugal vision, a small-scale production of five handmade cars per month was off and running by the end of the year. Is the 356 the car that James Dean drove? I was going to bring it up. I don't
3: think
4: so. So the 356 is the upside-down-looking bathtub one. Yeah, yeah. I saw one of these in pretty bad shape. Yeah, at a mechanic the other day. Huh. The fact been that been it was in bad
3: shape, yeah, makes yeah. me think it might have been real. Because most of them that you see, like on the crest or something, are replicas. Mm-hmm. Oh, because they're I didn't just know that. insane yeah. expensive.
2: Yeah, you yeah. Know? Based on their limited but notable success, Porsche signed a contract with German behemoth Volkswagen Volkswagenwerk at the end of 1948, which allowed the company to expand throughout Germany and Austria. Another sweet part of the deal was that Porsche moved their production facilities to a much larger factory back in Stuttgart which gave them the ability to manufacture more cars at a faster clip. With an additional 35 horsepower and a few minor design changes, the first Porsche 356 rolled off the Stuttgart production line in 1950. In less than two years, the company celebrated their 1,000th car delivered and had a crew of 200 workers cranking on the assembly line. Again, Ferry Porsche Jr.'s disciplined business plan proved to be extremely successful as the company's reputation for exclusive, high-quality machines began to spread. It seems fitting that Ferdinand Sr. passed away that year, as he finally saw his vision from decades prior blossom into a successful reality. By 1952, Porsche Jr. needed a logo for the bare hoods of his car. Like his father, Ferry was a very hands-on executive and designed the badge himself. He combined emblems and colors from the coat of arms of both Stuttgart and its state, Württemberg, with the black horse of Stuttgart as its centerpiece.
4: I horses. I'm going to put a horsey in the hood. <laughs> the logo said a bunch of car guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's like, choose something else.
3: <laughs>
2: Do you get it? It's like the modern day horse. <laughs> no, we get it. <laughs> the first logo appeared on the steering wheel hub of a 1953 Porsche 356. and It's the same one you'll find on your rich uncle's Porsche today. The mid-1950s saw a boom in Porsche publicity. From 1954 to 56, their cars won over 400 international races. In two years? That's crazy. And the 356 continued to sell extremely well. Another notable Porsche model of the time, one that would skyrocket to infamy was the 550 Spyder. This is
4: the James Dean one. Yes,
2: Mm -hmm. the ridiculously light race car-inspired coupe was the one 24-year-old James Dean was driving when he died, a car that he called Little Bastard in September of 1955 outside of Paso Robles, California. Despite Dean's tragic demise, his car actually boosted Porsche's popularity. In March of 56, the company celebrated their 10,000th car to leave the production line, and through the late 50s, nearly 70% of their sales... Came from abroad. Now, just looking at the Porsche 550, this doesn't really look like a car that, like, I'm imagining myself at 24 driving yeah. a car like this. I'd probably end up the same way. This thing, this thing You've looks always fast. Always been
4: kind of responsible, though. I know, but
3: not on track. I mean, yeah, on track. On track, no one spun out the other day. I did. Oh, Sick. I did. Yeah.
2: It was it was it was fun. He um, handled it a lot better than I did last time. Yeah, um, yeah. drove the car home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this thing's sweet, uh, to man. find
3: out what we're talking about. Check out our YouTube series High Low, where we took two Subaru WRXs, uh, built them into track cars, and I may have totaled one. We'll be right back with more of this story, but first, a word from our sponsors.
1: You can host the best backyard barbecue.
2: Porsche knew that with their rising profile, they had to keep their product as reliable as possible. In 1960, the company expanded to more than 1,250 factory and office employees with nearly 20% of the workforce assigned to quality control. Their combination of performance and reliability led to a company record profit of $108 million in 1960, equivalent to a little over a billion today. am wow. Good Lord. Son, One billion. Billion, that's with like dr B. evil money
3: i know that's a dr evil. dude that's a good line <laughs>
2: dr evil money yeah i got
3: that dr evil money the 356 was a bona fide hit but because it was still similar in design to the volkswagen beetle Ferry porsche and his team decided it was time for an entirely new model in 1964 they released a rear engine two-seat sports car with a more elegant look and an air-cooled flat rear engine they called it
4: The Porsche 911. We talked about this before, uh, but it was the 901. Mm -hmm. But Peugeot sued because they they had exclusive rights to have a zero in the middle of the numbers (laughs) in all European cars. The introduction of the 911 coincided with the last
3: 356 leaving the factory in 1965. After almost 20 years of increasing sales and a total of 76,302 units produced, the 356 series had more than pulled its weight in terms of raising Porsche's reputation, as well as their bottom line. And as we all know, over the next several years, the 911 became an icon. Culminating in 1971, Porsche revenues reached $900 million. Ferry Porsche Jr. and his sister expanded the board, who remains nameless apparently in this script, uh, (laughs) You know, Ferry and his sister. <laughs> Ferry, Porsche, Jr. and his sister expanded the board of directors. And in 1973, the firm went public under the name Porsche AG, which, of course, stands for Porsche Auto Group. Mm. But while all this corporate growth and Wall Street talk may sound hoity-toity, the same year sales of the 911 were their lowest ever. That fact, along with the 1973 oil crisis wreaking havoc on the auto industry, Porsche knew they had to make a dramatic move.
4: So they signed up to be in a play. (laughs) (laughs) Gnarly as the
2: oil crisis was for automakers and consumers alike, the disaster actually made Porsche push forward on a project that was inspired by Ralph Nader's precious book. You see, when Porsche freaked out over the possibility of rear-engine automobiles being outlawed in the mid-late 60s, they immediately went to work on their first front engine model. Enter the Porsche 924. When Johnny Cash penned his song, One Piece at a Time, he might as well have been talking about the 924. This Frankenstein of a speedster took the four-cylinder engine from an Audi 100 sedan, a Volkswagen Rabbit's McPherson struts, and the rear suspension that was very similar to the Volkswagen Super Beetle. And that's because the 924 was originally intended to be Volkswagen's flagship sports car, codenamed vw project 425 but due to the oil crisis and a change of directors at volkswagen in the early 70s they shut down the 425 project and move forward with the volkswagen scirocco instead noise i think i'd like to have a scirocco someday i'd like another one potentially at some point i want a scirocco and a mark 3 uh cabrio like the one that we ruined outside
3: damn dude you're turning into me I it's know. not ruined why no it's nice now
4: we Does took the run? supercharger off yeah
3: it runs it runs. It's got a cool new steering wheel. Got like sixty horsepower. Yeah, we should uh, polish it up and go cruise. Does it, is it? It's good. Yeah. Yeah. The cabrio right. runs. The Golf runs. All of our Mark Threes are good to go. let bro. Let's Even cruise, the dude. thirty
4: six runs too, but the cooling is little. Dude, I think I might come here on the weekend
2: and get the Cabrio.
4: Yeah. You where are you going to take it? I don't know. To The beach, Newport yeah, Beach. Yeah. I
2: mean, well, it's going to be cold. I think
4: you should go to a drive-in. Ooh.
2: Yeah, that's a good idea. That's a good with idea. With your honey.
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay. Uh, despite losing Volkswagen's enthusiasm, Porsche bought the Project 425 design from VW and continued to develop the new model. With hidden headlights, a sloping bonnet line, and a grillless nose, the first 924s hit U.S. dealerships in July of 1976 with a sweet mid level price of 9,395 bones. Which checks out to about forty-seven grand today.
4: Porsche thought that the 911 was as good as it was going to get after like twelve years of production, Mm -hmm. and so they were developing these cars with the intention of replacing, sunsetting the 911. Wow, which is insane to think. Forty years later, it's it still doesn't seem like it's reached its full potential.
3: Specifically was going to replace the 911. I, I
4: mean, they were they were like trying to fit every, mm-hmm. you know, price point. Mhm. But the fact that they thought that the 911 was as good as it was going to get <laughs> yeah. is crazy. Had they
3: even seen a new one? <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> They're crazy good now.
2: Yeah. <laughs> The 924 was praised for its fuel efficiency, design, and reliability, but it was harshly criticized for its underwhelming power. Well, you can't have fuel efficiency and power. Well, Well, not back then. Back then, you couldn't do it. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Expectations were extremely high due to the 911's amazing performance, but because of that little Audi engine, the 924 was only capable of a shade over 100 horsepower. And acceleration... Well, it was far from what critics anticipated, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Great read. Yeah, dude, that was tight. However, in a resounding response to the whiners, (laughs) the haters, (laughs) they're my motivators, Porsche introduced the 924 Turbo in 1978, which received stellar reviews. Car and Driver magazine even explained, fast, at last. The 924 became one of Porsche's best-selling models to date, and because it was relatively cheap to manufacture, the car was both profitable and easy to finance. The 924 was vital in helping Porsche off the brink of financial ruin in the 1970s, and the cash it generated allowed the company to continue development on the 911, their race cars, and even more consumer models. Riding high on the momentum of the successful sales run
3: of both 924 models, Porsche decided to up the ante by entering an upgraded version of the 924, the Carrera GT Turbo, into the 1980 24 Hours at Le Mans, the coolest race on the planet. It was a stellar premiere. Drivers Jurgen Barth and Manfred Schurte claimed a sixth-place overall finish with the other two Carrera teams finishing in the top 15. Porsche's success at Le Mans further bolstered the 924's reputation as an authentic racing car for the masses and set the tone for a fantastic decade. In 1981, revenues reached $1.5 billion, mm. with the United States making up nearly 40% of Porsche's sales. In 1983, U.S. customers saw the 924 replaced with the brand spanking new Porsche 944. Much to the delight of race fans, the 944 took styling cues from the Carrera and featured an inline four-cylinder engine that produced an impressive 150 horsepower. Keep in mind that most V8s at the time weren't even capable of 200 horses. The 944 was also a better handler, and unlike the noticeable shimmy of the 924's engine, the 944s were tight as a drum, thanks to upgrades in counterbalancing.
4: These things look so sick They're in so red sick with black sick. wheels. Mm-hmm. Sheesh. Sheesh. <laughs> Correct me if I'm mistaken, but is this what uh, Mazda copied for the f- like the first-gen RX-7?
3: Uh, I don't know if they copied it. The first-gen RX-7 looks a lot like a 924. Oh, okay. And then the second-gen looks like a lot like a 944. Okay. Um, so I don't know who was looking at whose homework, but those cars look pretty similar. Yeah. During the mid to late '80s, the 944 Turbo, Turbo S, and S2 proved to be on par with far more expensive imports like Ferrari and Maserati, <laughs> the Mario and Luigi of cars, uh, which only led to higher profits for the company. The Wait, ad- is
4: Lamborghini Wario then? Yeah, because he's yellow. He's a Ganowin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
3: The S2 is considered by many Porsche stands to be the primo version of the 944 because it handles so well and doesn't take on additional wear from a turbocharger. It was also the only 944 model with a convertible option and included the rarely seen integrated front bumper. But all of Porsche's fun and games screeched to a halt when the 1990s came around. After selling over 30,000 cars in the U.S. in 1986, sales had dwindled to only 4,400 by 1991, a year later, Porsche's worldwide sales sank to barely 23,000 units, the lowest annual growth rate in over a decade. Man, I sell more units than that. <laughs> Some bl- you sell a lot of units, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some blame the economy, but others pointed to ever increasing Porsche prices. The 911, for example, cost more in 1991 than it did in 2019 after adjusting for inflation. Wow. But the 1990s also brought competition from rival manufacturers like Mazda and Jaguar, and a steady turnover of top Porsche management only made the situation worse. I'm sure that these low sales numbers contribute to the fact that Porsches in the 90s, like the last air cooled ones, mm-hmm. are so expensive and hard to find. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, Porsche was able to hire an engineer and manufacturing expert named Vendelin. Vita King oh, yeah. okay. as CEO in nineteen ninety two. Vita King immediately reduced costs by restructuring the workforce and also brought in a team of Japanese consultants to help streamline manufacturing. Vita King prioritized an updated version of the 911 and more importantly pushed for a new mid engine car with a completely original design. In an attempt to win back consumers in the US, he insisted that the soon to be named Boxster would be priced at less than 40
4: grand. I think I remember reading about this guy and they had him come to the factory at first and the way that they were assembling Porsches was so archaic where Uh it was like, they didn't have a conveyor belt or anything. The engineer would like go over to a shelf, Mm -hmm. look for the part, take it out and just like install it. (laughs) And he's like, You guys should just have like... (laughs) uh, What if you only did that? Yeah. (laughs) And then he does the next thing. And then she
3: does the next thing. Yeah. The plan worked. The Boxster entered production in 1996 and was an instant success. Its first year fleet sold out in advance. The Boxster was a savior for Porsche. After three years in the red, the company broke even in 1995 and finally turned a profit in 96. Two years later, at the age of 88, and just before his company celebrated its golden anniversary, Dr. Ferry Porsche Jr. passed away. Fortunately, he could rest in peace knowing that Porsche was back in the black. Sales in the U.S. had climbed to over 18,000 units and well beyond 38,000 worldwide. Boxsters continued to be a massive hit, and in 1999, Porsche introduced a 3.2 liter, 252 horsepower version, which was also... Well-received. That sounds like a little
4: zipper. Yeah, a little zipper. Porsche Jr. They actually had a special run of 20 cars that had his bones in it.
3: Gross. (laughs) Like, not even, like, in the paint or anything. Just, Just like, in the trunk. Yeah, loose. (laughs) Jesus, (laughs) gross. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) That same year, Porsche announced a collaboration with Volkswagen to build an SUV, something that would change the luxury automotive game entirely. Just in time for the dawn of
2: the new millennium. Oh, hell yeah. Everyone's got frosted tips. We're wearing puka shell necklaces. Bye, bye, bye. Wearing long sleeve shirts under short sleeve shirts.
4: Everyone's wiping the sweat from their brow from the Y2K scare. I'm going to watch Gravity Games drinking a Sobe energy drink.
3: (laughs) Oh, hey, guys, what's up? I missed what we were talking about because I was out (laughs) soap-shoeing. Sorry, I got to leave the arcade, guys. Next is on. <laughs> 9-11 is only a Porsche to me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we'll get back to more past guests, but right now, a word from our sponsors.
5: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find
2: In the model year 2003, Porsche shocked the auto world with their release of the Cayenne SUV. The base model used a Volkswagen derived 3.2 liter V6. The that's it VR6. The VR6. A first for any production Porsche, with Motor Trend calling it an outstanding piece of work and the best handling, most powerful SUV on the planet. On the planet. Consumers raved about the performance of the Cayenne, especially the turbocharged V8 version, and how it could hold its own against a host of pure sports cars. On the heels of this, I mean, this thing was awesome. Like, yeah. you could take the same car, and go off, you could drive through the canyons to a trail, yeah. and do some off-roading, and mm-hmm. then drive
3: through the canyons back. They're super capable off-road, now that they're, you know, they've been around for long enough that you can get them for pretty cheap. Mm-hmm. There's companies like Eurowise in North Carolina who actually built my golf, mm-hmm. um, making some pretty cool off road stuff, and you can build a really cool uh, off road rig out of a Cayenne. That's Do you know sweet. why
4: they chose to name it the Cayenne? Because uh, it was spices' favorite spice. Yeah. Yeah. Because when you drive it, it absolutely blows your ass out. <laughs> 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 uh,
2: on the heels of the Cayenne's massive success. Porsche released their first high-performance sedan in 2009, the Panamera. Some critics were perplexed by its styling. I'll say the first gen is a little ugly. But the Panamera's handling and performance were generally celebrated. Celebrated, excuse me. And the model initially sold well. However, 2009 was also the year that Porsche once again found itself in serious financial trouble. Lucky for them, Volkswagen loaned them just shy of a billion dollars, which helped Porsche get more Panameras on the road. And while the model didn't sell as well as the Cayenne, mainly because it came at a higher price tag, the Panamera's additional sales helped pay down the company's significant debt. But VW had their clutches in Porsche, and by 2012, the automotive giant bought Porsche outright. There's a Panamera that has twin turbocharged V8, and also hybrid system, and it's all-wheel drive. Whoa. And it's... That sounds cheap to maintain. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's also, like, it has a wagon. It's like a wagon version. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have never heard of this. It's so sick, dude. Um the star our buddies up north, uh, the straight pipes, they tested it on their channel a few years ago and like they said it's like one of the hardest accelerating cars they'd ever tested. Yeah. So, yeah. So cool.
4: Four S E hybrid. Is that could that be it? Uh, maybe, but I, I don't know Sport anyway. Turismo. Sport
2: Turismo. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Oh it's awesome. Would love one. What I like about the current or the last Panameras that they made, they made them look more a little bit more like the Taycan mm-hmm. styling-wise, and ooh, it's, it's great-looking car. Yeah.
3: Well, what is it? It's a little wagon. I don't
2: know. It's sick. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the buyout was ultimately a great move for both companies. Porsche gained access to other VW Group platforms like Audi and Bentley, which helped them in crafting future models. Case in point. The Porsche Macan, the compact SUV, not that compact, really. It's, you know, little. it's small. It's small, but like, <laughs> come on. Uh, Max really wants a yeah, Macan. They're, they're cool. It came with a four-cylinder engine, uh, and it sat on the Audi Q5 chassis, but could still romp like a real Porsche, thanks to its staggered wheelbase and a Porsche-designed engine in the V6 models, at least. The base model Macan is one of the most affordable, best selling Porsches today. And in the tradition of the Cayenne and the Panamera, its popularity with consumers has helped fuel further development of the 911 and Porsche's other racing cars.
4: Their business model kind of paralleled like Facebook, where it's like super exclusive in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And people were like, well, it's that car. I wish I could afford that car. Mm-hmm. And then they started opening it up to more. Uh, affordable models and stuff and people are just scooping them up
3: it's also like our business model like we make a lot of list shows and podcasts and wish.com product tests uh (laughs) and that stuff all fuels stuff like high low yes and money pit and uh the more expensive build shows that we do
2: yes anyway another donable takeaway from the vw merger is that porsche has directly influenced other brands as well The second-generation Panamera included the MSB platform, which is the basis for the uh, Bentley Continental GT, and a Porsche-developed twin-turbo V8 is used in a number of Audis and Bentleys. So there you go. So
3: there you go. The late 2010s saw Porsche heavily invest in the future. By the way of its first purely EV technology, the Mission E. Partially financed by the wildly successful Macan and Cayenne, the four-door version of this concept, which eventually became the phenomenal Taycan EV, delivers over 600 horsepower and a range of more than 300 miles. It can accelerate from zero to 60 in less than 3.5 seconds. It only takes 15 minutes to charge 80% of the battery. I had a Taycan for a while, and it is my favorite car ever. It's so good. It's the coolest car I've ever... Driven. Like and I've never sound. driven a car and felt
2: that cool. It's the best. I love it. Like, it's like you just shit on Tesla drivers. Yeah. Yeah, you're just like dual motor. I'm like, how cool. about you take these dual L's, dude? Oh, you, know, yeah. you know, it'd be a, a power move.
4: <laughs> it'd be a power move to get a license plate that said, like L O L Tesla, <laughs> no. uh, take off. <laughs> I don't think that's cool. No, <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think you realized it when you said it out loud. <laughs> you were like, "Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> oh no!" I can't just stop now. <laughs> 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 Porsche had invested over a billion dollars into EV development and added 1,200 more employees to their Stuttgart workforce to increase EV manufacturing. The company has also gained a ton of knowledge from its 919 hybrid prototype race car program. And combined with the take on success, this avalanche of progress will certainly affect other Porsche models down the line, as well as other Volkswagen Auto Group marquees.
2: Porsche is a legendary car company. But it's ironic that the principles Ferry Porsche Jr. launched the company with, those being exclusivity and high performance, have worked as such a double-edged sword over the years. Sure, they've made incredible machines like the 911, but they were stubborn to change their strategy until they had their financial backs against the wall. Obviously, it all worked out. "Quote: Without our tradition
3: and without our core values, wait, this guy's German, we would not be where we are today." <laughs> <laughs> That was uh, Porsche CEO Oliver Bloom. Born in Brunswick, Germany. Yeah. That's what he said at the company's 70th anniversary celebration in Stuttgart. He goes on to say, We plan to uphold the standard of technical excellence set by Ferry Porsche well into the future. And we have what it takes to ensure that the Porsche brand continues to fascinate.
4: I apologize for my speech
3: impediment. <laughs> Y'all get yourself something nice to eat. Enjoy the party, and I'll catch you later.
2: <laughs> well, that's the story of Porsche. Yeah. By far, one of the coolest car companies. Like, it's like yeah. a duh.
3: It's like Porsches are. Blue. Yeah,
2: yeah. Love them. All right. Well, we got some. Uh, we got some fan mail today. This one. This is hate mail.
3: Yeah. Well, this one. Uh, Did you see? I, I started uh, an Instagram.
4: Yeah, it's really taken off. It's up to 44 followers. (laughs) (laughs) Okay,
2: well, we're going to get into this one. This is some fan mail for Joe. Hello, Donut Guys. I'm from Minnesota, and I just wanted to call Joe out on the error he made on the episode from September 26th. Wisconsin does have more, quote, lakes, in quotations, than Minnesota, but that's because of the definition they have for what a lake is. Here is my research. Okay, so he's there's some screenshots here. So Minnesota classifies body a lake as a body of water ten acres or more. Okay, and they have six thousand one hundred seventy six. Wisconsin they classify lake Joe as two acres or more, which is a much smaller That's, body of water. Way smaller.
4: When have you ever looked out at a two point two acre body of water and said? Whoa, that's a nice pond. Said that's like a, a lake. Said like a true a Wisconsinite. Lake. That's not a lake. That's a freaking bathtub.
3: I Maybe stand you go to Minnesota if you want to see some lakes. I
4: stand my ground. If you want to go to Nye's accordion bar, go to Minnesota. It's a good bar. If you. Want to drink past nine PM? Go to Wisconsin because of Minnesota's dumb blue laws. Um, If you are a Minnesotan and you hate
3: Joe, uh, you, can, <laughs> you can join. You can join the movement on Instagram at Minnesota hates Joe Weber. Uh, that's J O E W E B B E R.
4: <laughs> There's a reason that all Eastern Minnesotans drive to Wisconsin. I mean, look, it's clear that. Wisconsin is fudging
2: the lake numbers a little bit. A little bit. Um, That's not fudging. But that's not what's important here. We need to have Wisconsin Minnesota unity,
4: I think. No Uh, way. No, never. Never? Mm -mm. No. Are you guys bitter rivals? Yes. It's Prince versus. Yeah. Who's the guy from the lighthouse? Dude, you're from
3: (laughs) Wisconsin and you brought up Prince? (laughs)
4: Uh, Violent Femmes versus Prince.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, eh, Prince is better, but. Violent fans aren't bad. <laughs>
4: so. It's Willem Dafoe versus Prince. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, that's a matchup, I love, I right? Think there. That is a fun night. That is. A, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I love to
3: hang out Willem Dafoe and Prince. <laughs>
2: Man. Okay. Well, conclusion: Wisconsin sucks, and Minnesota is superior. So Lake Superior.
4: Uh. <laughs> that <laughs> also stretches to Wisconsin <laughs> yeah.
2: So That's where the first That's where the
3: first blood will be shed <laughs> have, have a great day
2: Jacob Stoll um, Well If you'd like to send us more mail Hit us up at, at All I'm
4: saying is I've gotten okay. more supportive <laughs> DMs From Wisconsinites than I, than I see followers on that Instagram page It's because so.
3: you're from there More Americans tell me they like me than people from ISIS
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point to end on. <laughs> All right, if you want to send us some mail, hit us up at passgas at donutmedia.com. We'd love to hear from you, especially if you include your own research. And sorry, Wisconsin has six thousand one hundred and seventy-six lakes, ten acres or larger. Um, just want to clear that up. Thank you very much for listening to the show. New listener returning listener or otherwise thank you so much for all your support over the years really means a lot yeah. um and go play the doza doza doza, <laughs> yeah. donut forza. Yeah. doza. Yeah, doza.
3: go play the for- donut go play the donut media forza five uh horizons uh sto- that DLC is hard to stories. say it's a free update it's a free uh,
2: update yeah where you can play alongside nolan and i uh follow the boys at joji weber follow james at james Weber. follow me at Nolan J. Sykes. Subscribe to the Donut channel if you haven't already. And a big thank you to our producers this week, Christina Felsky, Gavin Kinzel, and our writer, Luke Klompine. Have a great day. See you later. Bye-bye.